I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Zdrastvutia, and welcome to the history of Russia. This is episode 25, Tamerlane. Thanks for listening in. So, where were we? Well, last time we covered the life and times of Dmitry Donskoy, whose 30-year reign between 1359 and 1389 as the Grand Duke of Moscow and the last Grand Prince of Vladimir saw Lithuanian military expansion thwarted, the subjugation of the Principality of Tver and two major victories over the Mongols. However, the Golden Horde under its new Khan, Toktamish, gained revenge taking out Moscow in 1382 and re-establishing the Mongol overlordship, which had now been in place with a couple of minor breaks since the year 1240. This week we'll be looking at the period roughly between 1389 and 1425 and the shifting geopolitical sands that swirled and eddied around the key regional players. Moscow, of course, Lithuania, the Golden Horde, Novgorod, plus a new one that comes to the party, Poland, and how all of them were impacted, either directly or indirectly, by the actions of the last great nomadic conqueror to emerge from the Eurasian steppe, Tamerlane. Just before we start, I'd like to thank Caleb, MZJMFMCU, Daniel, Tim Jane Milgate, and also not a Russian bot, for following the podcast. Thank you so much, guys. It really is appreciated and makes the long hours that I spend writing and recording so much more worthwhile and enjoyable. Okay, there's a lot to cover in this episode and a lot of moving parts. And as I said last time, I want to start covering as much as I can, as quickly as I can. So without further ado, let's crack on and do some history of Russia. To begin with then, I'm going to set the scene on how each of our key political entities is doing circa 1390. And we'll start out in the West with the Kingdom of Poland and the Grand Duchy of Lithuania. So on the surface, Lithuania is doing all right, thank you very much. It governs the vast majority of the southern and western principalities that used to belong to the Rus. Its balance of payments is looking very healthy due to the trade agreements it has with the same principalities, but most importantly with Novgorod. 
Its armies have won battles against the Mongols, and it has tried on three occasions to take Moscow, and whilst each of those attempts were unsuccessful, it's in no real danger from its two main eastern adversaries. But there are two problems. The first is the religious makeup of the Grand Duchy, which is comprised of Orthodox Christianity from its Rus population, Judaism from its Jewish population, and the Jews had started to settle in the Lithuanian lands back in the 13th century, and then lastly, paganism. Yes, the Lithuanians themselves were still pagan, and it's this, and the presence of the other two religions, that are a direct cause of problem number two. The Teutonic Knights, who are still around, have a dim view of anything or anyone that isn't Catholic, and are determined to bring Lithuania into the cosy confines of Western Christendom. The ex-Rus states have been of some help in keeping the Knights at bay, but the reality is that this wasn't really their fight, and geographically they are miles away from the front lines, and so the Grand Duchy could do with the assistance of someone closer to hand. And so in 1385, Lithuania decided to form an alliance with their western neighbour, Poland. Or, if you want to look at it slightly differently, Poland, which was going through something of a dynastic crisis at the time and needed to fend off other interested parties, decided to form an alliance with Lithuania. The alliance, which took the form of a personal union between the two ruling families and was officially ratified by the Act or Union of Krajewo in 1386, saw Jogaila, the Grand Duke of Lithuania, convert to Catholic Christianity, marry the 12-year-old Queen of Poland, yes, 12-year-old, her name was Jadwiga, and become the elected King of Poland. And this union proved to be a decisive moment for both nations, as it marked the beginning of four centuries of shared history, ever closer cultural ties, and in time, Poland stroke Lithuania would go on to become a major thorn in Moscow's side. But all of that is a way down the road. For the time being, Poland will be satisfied that its kingdom and administration have sort of been preserved, and Dragaila is happy that he has a new ally in his ongoing fight against the Teutonic Knights. Okay, next we'll move up to the northeast and the Republic of Novgorod. And in 1390, the good citizens of Novgorod were worried. Throughout the 14th century, they had tolerated a degree of interference from their nearest neighbour and Moscow's long-time rival, Tver. But Tver had never really been more than a slight irritant, mainly because it was kept occupied by its ongoing struggles with the Muscovites. However, and as we saw in the last episode after the Treaty of Liubutsk in 1372, Lithuania was forced to stop giving support to Tver, and then in 1375 Dmitry Donskoy was able to annex the Principality, and in doing so, extend his own borders up to those of the Republic and start casting his eyes on both its territory and its lucrative trading links. And so, as we'll soon see, the citizens had every right to be worried. Now, the final stop on our little sojourn is Moscow itself, 
And just a little aside here, what I call Moscow, and those of you listening stateside call Moscow, is called in Russia Moskva. But I'm going to use Moscow, or sometimes Muscovy, as it was called by Europeans at the time, because, well, old habits die hard, and to use Moskva would seem just a little bit pretentious. Anyway, in 1389, Dmitry Donskoy had passed away, and his son Vasily was the new man in charge. Born in 1371, not much is known about his early life. His first notable appearance was in 1383, when we hear that he made a long trip to Sarai on behalf of his father to obtain the legal patent from Toktomish Khan that would allow Dmitry Donskoy to officially carry on being in charge of Moscow. Because if you remember one year earlier, Toktomish had captured Moscow and re-established the Horde's overlordship. The Mission East was successful and the Khan granted the necessary paperwork. But there was a catch, as Vasily was invited to stay on at Toktomish's court as a guest. Now everyone, including Vasily, knew that the word guest really meant hostage and that the reason for this Mongol house arrest was to keep Dmitri over in Moscow on the straight and narrow. The last thing that the Khan wanted was another Kulikovo. And so Vasily whiled away the days in Sarai, and the days turned into weeks, and then months, and then years. But then in 1385, and as we heard in the last episode with Dmitri Dunskoy behaving himself in Moscow, Toktomish decided to leave Sarai and go on a campaign in Azerbaijan to take on his former ally Tamerlane. And a year later, whilst the cat was away, the mouse, aka Vasily, escaped, managed to get back to safety in Moscow, and then when his father died in 1389, he slipped seamlessly into the role of Grand Prince. So we'll pick up on Vasily later on in the episode, but for now we'll take a look at what was going on in the Golden Horde. So we've pretty much covered indirectly what has been going on with the Mongols, and we know that after a period of dynastic infighting in which the Khan maker Mamai held sway over the different factions, Toktomish Khan managed to wrest control from the general after his defeat at the Battle of Kulikovo. And then the Khan at the head of a united Mongol army had then marched on Moscow, taken the city, and brought back Moscow under Dmitri into the Golden Horde's fold. So at this stage, Toktomish must have thought that he was pretty much unstoppable. So much so that he decided that now was the time to go on the offensive and expand his territory. And so, as we've heard, he headed down to Azerbaijan in 1386 to have it out with his former ally Tamerlane. But Azerbaijan wasn't his final destination. It was just the starter because the main course was to be the invasion of northern Persia, and in 1386 he plundered the city of Tabriz. But then between 1389 and 1391 there was a period of intense fighting between the Khan and Tamerlane, with no clear winner, although it did look like Tamerlane was ahead on points. So let's pause there for a minute and quickly summarise the overall situation. It's 1390, Lithuania and Poland have tied the knot both literally and figuratively. 
and their focus and attention for the time being is on the Teutonic Knights. Novgorod is worried about its new neighbour Moscow. Moscow itself is still under the nominal control of the Mongols and there's a new man Vasily in charge and the Golden Horde is locking horns with Tamerlane down in Persia. And so on the surface and apart from the fighting in Persia everything seems relatively ordered but that's all about to change and it's at this stage that we really need to talk about Tamerlane. He was born as Timur Gurkhani in either the late 1320s or the early mid-1330s in the territory that was ruled by the Chagatai Khanate in modern-day Uzbekistan and whose Khans were the descendants of Genghis Khan's second son, Chagatai. Now the population, though originally Mongol, had now become Turkicized, which sounds painful, but simply reflects the generations of intermarriage between the Mongols and the Turks that had taken place. So the name Temur, or Timur, which literally meant iron in the Chagatai language, later morphed into Timur the Lame, and then into its European derivation, Tamerlane. And this was because of two injuries that he suffered that left him with two fingers missing from his right hand, but more importantly, a heavy limp in his right leg. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. But Tamerlane wasn't going to let those injuries get in the way of ambition. He was intelligent, knew how to impress and get along with the right people, and before long had established himself as one of the senior players in the Carnate. His only problem was that, as he was not a descendant of Genghis, he could never assume the title of Khan. So he took a leaf out of Mamai's playbook, got rid of the established ruler, and set up a puppet Khan to rule under his direction and his control. So with his power base established, Tabalane went on the offensive, started to expand his territory, and this saw him involved in various military campaigns, including helping Toktamish in his recapture of Moscow back in 1382. And then as we've seen, and through no apparent fault of his own, he gets involved in further battles when the Mongol Khan decided to strike south and start a war in Azerbaijan and northern Persia. So I mentioned earlier that Tamerlane was probably ahead in points, and that's because he had defeated Toktamish at the Battle of the Kondurcha River in 1391. However, the Mongol forces, although defeated, were not out of the game, 
and in 1395 they returned to raid Tamerlane's territory. But their raid achieved nothing because later that year Tamerlane caught up with the Mongol army as they retreated back to Sarai and crushed them at the Battle of the Terek River and now the territory of the Golden Horde lay open and defenceless. And Tamerlane, who knew an opportunity when he saw one, went on to raid the Horde's homeland, burning and pillaging five major cities, including the capital, Sarai. And he then moved north and started to raid the lands that bordered Muscovy, before suddenly returning back to the Caucasus region and then northern Persia. Toktamish survived but was overthrown by the new Khan, Edigu. However, he managed to escape Edigu's clutches and he headed west to the Ukrainian steppes in search of a safe haven or maybe even a potential ally. Anyway, whilst he does that, we'll head up to the north and check to see how things have been panning out in Moscow. Vasily's reign started quietly with a bit of territorial expansion adding further eastern lands to Moscow's heartland, including Nizhny Novgorod and Muron. But then he had to consider his foreign policy. To do this, what he really needed was information, and particularly information about what was happening out to his east with the Mongols. Now, we don't know if he had his own network of spies or had received reports about what was going on between Tamerlane and Toktamish, but it would appear that he had heard something because in 1392 he entered into an alliance with the new Grand Duke of Lithuania, Vytautas, who had taken over when Drogaila had been elected King of Poland. And as part of the deal, Vasily married Vytautas's daughter, Sophia. But perhaps he jumped into the Lithuanians' arms too quickly, because in 1395 news reached him that Tamerlane had more or less destroyed the Golden Horde's army, and then had marched away from Moscow, leaving Vasily effectively without an overlord. But he didn't want to do anything rash at this stage. He continued to collect the Mongol taxes, only now he kept the cash for himself, rather than sending it on, and he kept up the pretense, for the time being, of convincing Lithuania that he still needed them as allies. Meanwhile, in 1397... Vasily engineered a conflict with the Republic of Novgorod and then used this as an excuse to annex the lands of the northern Dvina River which were crucial to Novgorod's financial well-being since this was where much of the city's furs came from. And Novgorod had to like it and lump it. The Republic couldn't turn to Lithuania for help because the Grand Duchy was allied to Moscow. But unbeknown to them, the alliance was starting to fray and wasn't to last, and several years later, in 1408, it broke down completely. And this was bad timing on Vasily's part, because in the same year, Edigu Khan appeared out of the blue, and he wanted his money. And to show how much he wanted his money, he burnt Nizhny Novgorod, Gorodyets, Rostov, and many other towns, but stopped short of taking Moscow, and Vasily, recognising what would happen if he didn't cough up the cash, coughed up the cash. And now was sort of back to square one as a vassal of the Mongols. So in this lull in the fighting, and yes, there's more to come, 
I want to spend a bit of time looking at a few other notable non-military events or themes that occurred during Vasily's reign. And the first is land ownership, always a thorny topic, which increasingly in the late 14th and early 15th centuries saw the transfer of large areas of Muscovite land from private landowners to the state, i.e. Vasily and his boyars. The main reason for this was the calling in of loans, most of which had been made during Ivan Kalita and Simeon's time to replace the taxes that Vasily suddenly had to pay to Edigu Khan. And to put it simply, if you couldn't pay back your loan, you forfeited your land. Another notable event reported by the Chronicles was the appearance in 1404 of the first public clock in Moscow. Apparently, Vasily had heard of a mechanical clock-making monk by the name of Lazar the Serb. Anyway, Vasily did the early 15th century equivalent of sending Lazar a WhatsApp, and voila, several months later, to the amazement of all who saw it, a new clock and clock tower were installed in the Grand Prince's palace. And then the last thing I want to touch on, and this is very much a sign of the times, particularly if you were a woman, and on first reading something I found both really sad and at the same time quite difficult to believe. So Vasily and his wife Sophia of Lithuania had nine children, five sons and four daughters. And of the nine, four of the children died in either infancy or childhood. So for the standards of the age, this would have been a fairly average situation. What probably wasn't average, though, were the 15 reported miscarriages that Sophia suffered. And that meant that in total, she had 24 pregnancies between 1392 and 1420, which is almost one a year for 28 years. And if true, is simply jaw-droppingly unbelievable. And as I've said before, very sad. And to add to this amazingness, Sophia went on to live to the grand old age of 82 and acted as regent for the only one of her sons that reached adulthood. Okay, time to wrap up for this week and to do that we need to tie up some of the loose ends. We left Toktomish back in 1395 somewhere in the Ukrainian steppe. Well, he eventually turned up in Lithuania signed a deal with Grand Duke Vitautas, and in 1397, both of them set off on a campaign to win back the lands of the Golden Horde for the ex-Khan, and gain even more territory for Vitautas. But unfortunately, their plans collapsed in a heap when they were defeated by a Mongol alliance led by Edigu Khan at the Battle of the Vorskla River. Vitautas scuttled back to Lithuania with his territorial ambition severely dented. Toktomish again managed to survive, but this time escaped eastwards to the wilds of Siberia. But he was remorselessly tracked and hunted by Edigu's agents, and in 1406 they finally cornered him and murdered him. After his successful campaign against Moscow in 1408, Edigu Khan returned to Sarai to start a rebuild of the Golden Horde, but he was overthrown in 1410 and had to seek refuge with one of Tamerlane's descendants in Central Asia. But in 1419, 
he was cornered by an armed group led by one of Toktamish's sons, and he too was murdered. After his success against the Golden Horde in 1395, Tamerlane went on to record an impressive list of military conquests, including the successful invasions of southern Persia, northern India, Armenia, Georgia, Egypt, and much of the Middle East, and Turkey. You have to wonder what would have happened if, after defeating the Mongols, he had continued on to Moscow rather than returning to Persia and turning his attentions to the lands way to the south, and I reckon that Vasily, Novgorod and Lithuania, Lithuania dodged a serious bullet there. The scourge of Asia died in 1405, on the way to try his luck against Ming China. Scholars reckon that during his 35-year military career, his armies were responsible for the deaths of some 17 million people which supposedly was around 5% of the total global population at the time, although how anyone worked any of this out is anyone's guess. As for Vasily, not much is recorded about his later reign. There is mention of further Novgorodian territory being annexed, and he remained on paper at least under the overlordship of the now weakened Golden Horde. He died in 1425, leaving the throne in the care of his only surviving son, the ten-year-old Vasily II. OK, join me next time when we'll be looking at the young Vasily's long reign, which includes a deadly bout of Muscovite civil war and the slow but terminal breakup and fragmentation of the Golden Horde. So until then, stay safe, look after yourselves, and I'll see you all soon.